Hey everyone, I'm Mike Wong, and you're listening to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Special welcome to those of you who saw my virtual Science of Star Trek talk through the King County Library System and are joining us on Strange New Worlds for the very first time. It's great to have you on board. Today, we are responding to the eighth episode of Star Trek Discovery's third season, titled Sanctuary. As always, we have three short segments, Think, Feel, and Question. The think for this episode begins before the episode actually aired. So one of the promo photos that the Star Trek social media accounts posted earlier this week leading up to the episode Sanctuary, was a photo of Lieutenant Bryce at his comms station on the Discovery Bridge, and on his computer terminal was an image of the planet of the week, Quajon, and some interesting planetary statistics about Quajon. If you're interested in looking at this image yourself, I've put a link in the show notes to its appearance in the Trek Core database. So, According to Lieutenant Bryce's computer, Quajon is an M-class planet, which is Star Trek speak for it's suitable for humanoid life. M-class planet, that's not a real scientific designation, but what follows are real scientific terms like apelion, perihelion, eccentricity, and inclination, and those things describe Quajon's orbit. The first thing that stuck out to me was that Quajon's semi-major axis is 0.72 AU, or 0.72 astronomical units. This basically means that Quajon orbits its star at 72% the distance between the Sun and the Earth. And it turns out that 0.72 AU is the distance that Venus orbits our sun. So this got me really curious, and I looked up Venus's exact orbital data. And it turns out that Quajon's orbital characteristics are essentially identical to that of Venus. For instance, Quajon's semi-major axis is exactly 0.723332 astronomical units, and Venus's is also 0.723332 AU. And Quajon's eccentricity is 0.006772. And Venus's? You guessed it, it's also 0.006772. Now, the eccentricity is a measure of how oval or circular a planetary orbit is. Eccentricities of zero are exactly circular. So Quajon, like Venus, takes a nearly perfectly circular path around its star. From this, it follows that Quajon's aphelion and perihelion, which are the farthest and closest it gets to its star over its entire orbit, deviates very little, from the value of its semi-major axis, and again, those quantities are exactly the same as Venus's. Now, eagle-eyed viewers may have noticed that Quajon's rotation period and orbital period don't match Venus's values. 
the orbital period at 583.92 days is actually Venus's synodic period. So we'll just chalk that up to a typo and ignore it. Zora was probably just distracted by an old-timey movie or something when she was compiling that number. Anyway, to figure out the actual orbital period of Quajon, we can take the circumference of Quajon's orbit, 2 pi times the semi-major axis, and divide that quantity by Quajon's average orbital speed of 35.02 kilometers per second, which matches Venus's orbital speed on the dot. With this, we find an orbital period of 225 days. Again, no surprises here, exactly Venus-like. So it seems like whoever made this computer screen for the show just copied and pasted Venus's orbital characteristics into Quajons. <laughs> and honestly, that's pretty amusing. But it also raises a very interesting scientific question. So let's just roll with these orbital characteristics. They're canon, after all. Quajon is exactly like Venus. Except Quajon is nothing like Venus. Quajon is a living world, suitable for trees, humans, transworms, and sea locusts. On the other hand, Venus is a veritable hellscape, with a crushing carbon dioxide atmosphere, clouds of sulfuric acid, and a surface hot enough to melt lead. So why are Quajon and Venus so different if they share the exact same orbit. Now, the classic scientific narrative for what went wrong on Venus is that long ago, Venus may have been very much like the Earth in that it could have started out with oceans of liquid water and have been habitable around the time that microscopic organisms were emerging and evolving here on our planet. Over the eons, though, our sun slowly brightened. And this is totally typical. Stars naturally brighten over time. And at some point, this gradual brightening got too much for Venus, forcing it into a so-called runaway greenhouse state. This is where the surface of your planet gets so hot that you can no longer support liquid water on the planet's surface. And that water boils away into steam, and that steam makes the atmosphere hotter and hotter, and then the water molecules rise higher and higher into the atmosphere, where eventually they get shredded by ultraviolet sunlight into itty-bitty atoms that get swept away into space, never to be seen again. And that's essentially how you lose your habitability. Pretty grim, right? So who's to blame? Well, in this story, it's the sun. The sun's inexorable brightening spelled doom for Venus. Now, because we know that Quajon's orbital characteristics are exactly that of Venus's, its star is also basically like our sun. Now, if you want to know more about how we can deduce that from the orbit of the planet itself, 
please visit episode 67 of Strange New Worlds, where I discuss the planet Zahia's habitability. But basically, Quajon's star can be expected to be similar to our sun and undergo a similar course of brightening over time. And eventually, Quajon should be forced into a Venus-like state. So the conclusion from this logical framework is that Quajon must be a younger version of Venus. Venus before its star got too bright. A Venus-like world at an earlier stage of planetary evolution. One that was habitable, and in the case of Quajon, inhabited, but will not always last that way. And in a few billion years, perhaps, Quajon will become as inhospitable to us as Venus is in our solar system. Now, there's an alternative paradigm to all of this, actually. Just this year, researchers at NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies have proposed an alternative explanation for what happened to Venus. One of these researchers was actually Dr. Tony Del Genio, who we had on Strange New Worlds all the way back in episode 52, titled The Cloud Academy. Anyway, Tony and his colleague Mike Way performed climate modeling that shows if you take into account the slow rotation of Venus and the subsequent effect on Venus's clouds, those clouds will actually shield the planet from the ever-brightening sun. And Venus could very well still be habitable to this day. If this is true, it means that the sun has been falsely accused as the culprit of Venus's loss of habitability this entire time. Instead, Mike Way and Tony Del Genio speculate that Venus's catastrophic transition was self-induced that the eruption of so-called large igneous provinces, basically volcanic activity so widespread that it resurfaced Venus's entire globe, injected so much CO2 into Venus's atmosphere that the greenhouse effect just completely overwhelms the planet. So, in this version of the story, it wasn't the external solar forcing that caused Venus to lose its habitability, but the internal dynamics of Venus itself. This raises a really intriguing possibility, and the authors write in their paper that planets on Venus-like orbits around other stars may not be doomed to end up like Venus. If they have different internal properties, maybe their volcanic histories would be different, and maybe they would never wind up like Venus. So, to recap, there are two possibilities when it comes to planet Quajon, a planet with the exact same orbital characteristics as Venus. Case number one. If the reason why Venus lost its habitability is because the growing luminosity of our sun overwhelmed its surface temperature, then Quajon must be a young Venus at a time before its star has become as bright as our sun is now. Case 2. 
Venus was actually fine with the sun getting brighter because its cloud cover was enough to reflect that increasing amount of sunlight back into space. Instead, Venus lost its habitability because of the eruption of large igneous provinces. In this case, Quajon could be as old or even older than Venus, and has simply experienced a different volcanic and tectonic history that didn't push it into catastrophe. Okay, let's move on to the feel segment. They're fast. Hmm? Um, they? Not, not she. I've never felt like a she or, or a her, so I would prefer they or them from now on. Okay. Um, and I've never told anyone but Gray. We finally got our much-anticipated they-them moment in Star Trek. While it's not something that I've experienced myself from Adira's position, I have been in Stamets's position several times. When friends come out to me as gay or non-binary, or really anything about their identity that they keep shielded from most of the world, it's always a raw moment, because they're making themselves vulnerable, putting a lot of trust in me, with no control over how I'll react or any a priori guarantee that I'll understand. It takes huge amounts of courage. And you could see both that hesitance and that courage play out in Adira in this scene, which I thought was just powerfully portrayed. And as my friend Desun Oka pointed out to me, it was important that Adira's gender identity was set before their trill joining, meaning that their identity wasn't a result of that improbable cosmic twist of fate that integrated so many past lives into their own, but a part of their human nature all along. And finally, the question from this week. In the promo for next week's episode, the ninth episode of Season 3 of Star Trek Discovery, we get a potential reference to the Kelvin timeline, that alternate reality that the J.J. Abrams trilogy takes place. And this was first pointed out to me by my friend James T. Keene. You're here, traveled forward from 2379 and across from an alternate universe created by the temporal incursion of a Romulan mining ship. Before Giorgio, Yor was the only individual known to have traveled across both time and dimensions. So you knew this would happen to her? Suspected. So my question this week is simple. Do you think we're going to have a crossover into the Kelvin timeline? Do you want a crossover into the Kelvin timeline? You can let me know on Twitter. I'm at Mike Y. That's at M-I-Q-U-A-I. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Now, speaking of crossovers, here's an important announcement. There will be no episode response on Strange New Worlds next week. Instead, 
you'll find my thoughts on the Infinite Diversity, a Star Trek Universe podcast, where I'll be a guest of Justin, Brandon Shea, and Chrissy's to discuss Terra Firma Part 1. Again, that's Infinite Diversity, a Star Trek Universe podcast. Link is in the show notes. Take care, everyone, and I'll see you out there.